I hope you got something good this week. Cause this is. <laughs> <laughs> Are you not, you're not feeling Ben Hur. <laughs> part of it. Yeah. I mean, part of it is under the circumstances under which I watched this movie and I didn't have a lot of time to, I should have watched it earlier in the week so I could have time to reflect on it more. I kind of literally just finished it like, maybe an hour ago not even gotcha i it did make me kind of want to watch the remake yeah. well i don't know how i've not seen it i've only seen the trailer and just based on the trailer i was like this is it looks not good <laughs> i feel like i mean there's like two halves to this movie right and one mm-hmm. half of it i was really into and i thought was really fun the like revenge storyline that reminded me of like the count of monte cristo or something which I love. But then like it like tries to be this religious epic at the same time and all of that stuff, anything involving Jesus, I did not enjoy. <laughs> Everything you just said I can is pretty much what I think about this film. So we can get into it. Uh, I have a couple other things to, to maybe to maybe bring up. You can see from the notes we mentioned last time. I was like in Spartacus. I had like wall to wall text. Yeah. <laughs> this one, my notes page is is much more sparse. But let's. Uh, I think I think you're up for the intro. Yeah, I think it is me. All right. Hello and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Colin McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about Ben-Hur, the 1959 MGM religious question of epic directed by William Wyler and and starring Charlton Heston. Nice. Yeah, I think think it is. I mean, that's at least how it's formally described. This is ostensibly a religious film, although the religious aspects of it are kind of bookend the bookend the film and yes. i would say sort of run throughout but like you were kind of just saying to me this it reads as sort of two different films yeah and and like the it, the plate at the beginning that's like what is it a story of the christ or something yes i was mm-hmm. like really that's not what i thought this movie was about having just like read a synopsis or like a little you know narrative blip or whatever it's like that's I, not what i thought this movie was about and it wasn't really <laughs> But like, kind of. <laughs> so I take it to say, so like, do you do you dig this movie? And then that's also my. What's he, when is this the first time you've seen this, or have you yes. seen it before? No, this is the first time I've seen this. And you watched it last night, for the, so you watched it last night for the first time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do you dig it? Uh, no, I want to. I want to <laughs> say no because like. The religious aspect, I think, kind of ruined it for me. Like, there are parts of this movie that I think I really did enjoy, but it was kind of just overshadowed mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. I I, I kind of dig this film. I want to dig it. Yeah. Is part of it. But there's there's parts that are sort of holding me back. And, and I think I've seen The Chariot Race, which we're going to have to talk about, which is yeah. probably this movie's most enduring. Like, I think not even probably definitely this movie's most enduring legacy i probably have seen that at least 10 times oh yeah just yeah. in various contexts mm-hmm. yep. and the other three hours and 40 minutes of movie <laughs> i have mixed feelings about kind of two there's like a story in there that i really like the i think you're right the plate that it's a tale about christ or a tale of christ is a bit misleading mm-hmm. and i what my reaction i think on this 
viewing was I had forgotten how much Jesus there was in this movie. And because I remember the I remembered the scene. I had seen it before, I think, in college or something like that. Like I think this was in I made a I had made a point, I think, in college, probably around the same time I saw Spartacus okay. to kind of check some of these films out. And I remembered the scene with the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where, where Christ gives him the water to drink. And I remembered the end. I remembered the end differently for some reason. <laughs> and like, I completely forgot that it ends with, with crucifixion. Yeah. Really dramatic crucifixion too. Very, very much. So I'm, I'm trying to organize my thoughts. The, this movie I like, I dig, this movie is impressive in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah. And I think there's aspects of it, like we were talking about Spartacus of just like the logistics of the battle sequence mm-hmm. uh, and impressive. I think this movie is like that. This movie is like the biggest movie ever. <laughs> it had something like 10,000 extras. Two and a half thousand horses were used over the course of filming. Jesus. The uh, but it, that the big it was the most expensive thing. It had the largest budget uh, of the time, something about fifteen million dollars. Largest sets ever built. It was just the biggest film ever, and it paid off for the film. And sure. sometimes, like bigger is better. And we kind of talk. I think like Quo Vadis kind of starts this trend of mm-hmm. like, which was also MGM, mm-hmm. and of just like let's put all you know. It's it's a risky venture. But it paid off. This movie made bank, to quote a sort of podcaster I'm I'm fond of. This this movie pays out like a slot machine. Uh, <laughs> and not only did it make bank, it won eleven Academy Awards, which is a feat not match. Can you guess which movie matched that feat? You might already know. Um, is it something that I don't that like you wouldn't expect? No, you would expect. I think this oh. one is like fairly predictable. Oh, then I don't know. Oh, it's Titanic. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And then I think also to a lesser extent, Lord of the Rings. Um, I think Return that's what of the I King was gonna guess matched. actually. <laughs> yeah, no, that one also matched it. Uh, it's like the, the one you don't think about is the Return of the King. Well, that I mean, that's like I think funnily, that's probably my least favorite Lord of the Rings Same. film. Yeah, I, I think Two Towers is my favorite. Although I do I really agree. like Fellowship. I think they're very my my my. I rank them the same way I tend to rank Star Wars films, where I think two's the best. Yeah, followed short followed shortly by one. Mm-hmm. Or closely by one. And then three is kind of a little bit true. And then I think Return of the King, because I'm just going to pivot. We're not going to talk about Ben-Hur. Let's just talk about Lord of the Rings. Yes. (laughs) We'll come back to Ben-Hur in a second. But I think Return of the King and Return of the Jedi both have, there's aspects of them peeking through that are going to forebode, that forebode the things we're not going to like about the prequels. Yes. Like the the sort of campy silliness, Mm -hmm. the reliance on sort of absurd stunts. The like, you know, just go- like not goofiness, but like. But yeah, there's, yeah, there's, there's an element of, of goofiness there. I, yeah, I, I think see there's what things you mean. You, like the the pros still by far outweigh the cons in those movies. And I still like those movies, but you can see the things that and come when we come back a couple of years when we revisit them a couple of years later, they're gonna poke through and it's yep. gonna make. Which is actually a perfect segue because I was gonna say this the the one spiritual successor. Speaking of Star Wars. In Star Wars prequels, I think the true spiritual successor to this movie, or at least part of it, is the Phantom Menace. <laughs> Not because of the religious allegory <laughs> or the story of Christ, but because of the podcast rate, the podcast podcast, the pod race scene, the podcast pod race scene, podcast pod race, podcast pod race race pod chariot, yeah. <laughs> is the chariot sequence, yeah. like ex- like like they're actually like in chariots. Yep. 
<laughs> Except they just have giant engines instead of horses. And exactly. like the same same thing where there's like like Sebulba's playing dirty. Yep. And like you know, knocking other charioteers aside. Anyways, anyways, anyways. <laughs> we'll come back to the, we'll come back to the chariot race in a second, because that's I think what we gotta talk about. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. So, but yeah, this is like the biggest movie ever. And it and it pays off. And I think there's I, I was in preparation for this, I was looking at some reviews and reading some reviews and watching some more modern reviews. And people seem, I think, a little bit divided. I think some people are like, eh, it's a little long or kind of the kind of plot that it, it points. And others are like, no, I like, I, I think it's the, the length didn't bother me. Mm. I'm sort of more on the former. I think really the, after the chariot race, after that final confrontation with Masala, for me, this, the last, the back like hour of this movie yes. is like 30 to 40 minutes too long. I completely agree. Yeah. And just because it, it really just pivots in a very weird way, and I and I and, I, and I'm the more I think about it, there's themes that I like because the arc and I think the importance of having like his encounters with Jesus throughout the film because his life kind of parallels almost like Life of Brian, where his life kind yeah. of parallels, but they never really cross. Right, right, right. Yeah, at least or they do, but not in like a major way because he doesn't even realize that he's already met Jesus until the very end. Exactly when he sees them, like hey, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he gets the water and, and, and really like Jesus is sort of mercy because that's really, I think, the, the thematic core of this film is yeah. the tension between revenge and forgiveness. Yeah, which I think is a great, like really interesting theme that mm-hmm. I still think did not need to be like Jesus-y <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to still get across that whole that whole forgiveness versus revenge story. Yeah, line. like I think it's... I'm like of two minds where like it it has like this movie isn't quite pushing the, well, I'm not sure. Let me actually, let me, I want to ask you what you think. Like, is this movie pushing quite the same sort of Christian pro-Christian narrative that we said we kind of complained about in Quo Vadis, which is very much has this like martyrdom persecution complex. And I I think, and maybe I'm influenced, I think by some of the reviews I just listened to and read where there's like a bit of a, I mean, it is, coated and draped in all of this Christian, you know, imagery and iconography and like reverence. But there's a little bit like you don't necessarily have to buy into that to, I don't know, maybe I'm deluding myself. I'm not actually sure at this point. I don't know. Cause I don't think there's the same persecution-y martyrdom aspect because mm-hmm. like people aren't only Jesus dies, I guess, really. Yeah. <laughs> right. So but I feel like they, we do have that sort of like determinism um, yeah. that we have that it's Everybody, like, this is going to be so important. Yeah, because in the first, I don't know, however many minutes before we even meet Judah Ben-Hur, we, it's all, you know, we get the mm-hmm. birth of Christ. And then there's a shot where it's his father and yep. the guy comes into his carpentry shop and he's like, where's your son? Like, shouldn't he be working? <laughs> and he's like, he is working. He's out in the fields. And then... <laughs> And everybody kind of like everyone who encounters like any or those is the scene where Jesus gives Ben her water mm-hmm. and then the Roman soldier comes over to he be just like, like, stop that. Yeah. And he has like a <laughs> like a revelation or something when he yeah. like sees Jesus. Yeah. It, in a way that like, yeah, it does have that exact same kind of determinism. Yeah. And I just I I don't know that that didn't add anything to it for me. And maybe that's mm-hmm. just because I'm not viewing it you know, in the late fifties and that would have meant, you know, a lot more to the audience at that point. Mm-hmm. But I think it kind of detracted. China. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
it's funny. <laughs> yeah, ban- banned in China because uh, because of the pro-Christian message. Well, I mean, I, I do sort of like see all of like those themes running through it, but I do think that you could almost cut out all of the Jesus narrative and still have an interesting movie. <laughs> yeah, there's, I wonder, actually, I really wonder, I should have looked up what the remake does with this because I, I don't remember that being... At least in the trailers I saw, like they really yeah. focused in on like the revenge plot. Which, yeah, I I can see that really working in a remake, which is why I kind of think I I want to at least like watch the beginning of it or something. I don't know if I want to commit for the whole movie. So, <laughs> so th- there's there's a funny thing about actually this is about remakes in general because like that was one I remember when that came out, people were like, why are they remaking Ben Hur? Yeah, you know, like let Sleeping Dogs Lie, just gonna you know like oh we're gonna go back and like retroactively ruin a classic or something like that. Yeah. Which I think might, you know, this that movie is not exactly doing anyone any favors. I think is largely, I think it is a pretty, pretty by and large a remake yeah. of, of this film, the 1959 film. But this 1959 film is itself a remake of a 1925 silent film by MGM. <laughs> Which I didn't know was a novel, right? Like in the yeah. 1800s mm-hmm. or something? The, I had no idea. Yeah. And it's so, like, I mean, we, we complain today, I think, a lot about how... There's sort of nothing, there's like very few original ideas coming out of Hollywood, yeah. which I think is, you know, if if not cliche, like a fair criticism, like sure. there's a lot of sequels and reboots and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's not necessarily as new of a thing as we're making it out to be that like earlier decades were like, in you know, populated entirely by fresh original ideas. Yeah. This movie is a, is a remake. It's different, I think, in noticeable ways. But yeah, based on, I mean, like, like all, man, most of these films were like... Like, Quovatus was based on a book mm-hmm. and has an earlier version. Right. Spartacus based on a book. Yep. This one based on a book. So that's a pretty I like, know, standard that's, sort of thing. Yeah, but that's, like, something that I didn't know about these movies before we started, mm-hmm. like, watching them and reading about them. Like, I had I yeah. had no idea. Weird. I've heard the, I've heard, I mean, I, I, I can't testify that the, the naval battle is actually slightly better in the 1925 remake because or not really? the remake the 1925 film because they actually used like a real ship huh? that actually caught fire and then there's like people jumping off the ship because it's like actually a ship and the extras are like we need to get off this burning ship oh my god <laughs> i liked the the naval battle actually i thought that was really dramatic and scary i, I like there's some part i think the, the, the wide shots where they have the models mm-hmm. looks a little it does goofy. it does but i'm thinking like the interior um, yeah. And like the water rising and then like there's blood in the water and they're trying to pull mm-hmm. the chains the, off. There's a great shot where he like can looks out the window and he sees the other ship coming right at yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty cool. That was cool. Yeah. So I, uh, I liked that part. Yeah. Okay. So the parts that I really liked about this movie, I think are the the relationship between these two men Mm-hmm. that in the beginning kind of actually really reminded me of something very like Game of Thrones-esque. It's like two uh, people who like grew up together and then are like pulled apart and become rivals by their political, mm-hmm. you know, stations and pressures. And that was really, really interesting. It's like, you know, the personal relationship between these men. And then the whole like Count of Monte Cristo story where he like, you know, swears mm-hmm. revenge and like learns new skills mm-hmm. and comes back and yeah i love that that was awesome yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah let's talk about let's talk about masala and 
and Judah uh, okay. at first. Masala played by Stephen Boyd. Who I, th- I think they're great. I think like they're, and I think really it, it, there's emotional investment where you, when we meet them at first, we really sort of get a sense that these are childhood friends. Yeah. It remind, I was thinking a lot, this is, it hasn't happened yet a lot, but the character of Herod Agrippa in I, Claudius is kind of similar where he's, he and Claudius are these longtime childhood friends and eventually Herod kind of betrays Claudius a little because Herod, he thinks he's, a, he's the Messiah and sort of makes a claim and tries to sort of lead a revolt. But yeah, Masala is this, aggressively ambitious mm-hmm. Roman political player who basically there's an, yeah, there, there's an accident where Judah's sister knocks like a tile off the roof mm-hmm. and, it, and it hits the governor. Yeah. And then <laughs> Masala uses this opportunity to throw Judah under and his whole family under the bus for political prestige basically, and just portray them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And then, and so, yeah, you get the sense that Masala is like, he's become sort of dark and cynical and sort of poisoned by the political machinations of Rome. And like he he wants Judah to like betray his own countrymen, right? He's like you yes. yeah. like we're more like our relationship, our friendship is more important obviously, so therefore you should mm-hmm. you know, what's the life of a few Jews or something he says like yeah, to you. Yeah, he wants them to inform cuz yeah. there's been, you know, f- f- rebel revolt yeah yeah. fermenting yeah but like i could have watched like them trying to you know politically dance around their old friendship for like much longer than it goes Mm -hmm. on i feel like they they have this rift like pretty early on in the movie yeah and i that was like there was a lot of tension there and i could have watched that for a lot longer (laughs) it's very it's very sort of cleanly set up where they they have they meet they're like oh we're good friends again we're always going to be friends there's a very I don't know if you read it this way, but it was like, I felt a very homoerotic. Oh, kind of for like, sure. Yeah. When like with the javelin throwing, yep. and the, like, the, <laughs> like them sort of, they gaze very passionately at one another. They like have that, the, like the, they drink their cups like intertwined. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they play around with spears a lot, <laughs> but yeah. And, and, but then like Masala in like the next scene is like, yeah, you should spy and betray on, you should, you should give me names and betray your people. Yeah. Because we're friends. And Judah's like, uh, I will not uh, do that. No. <laughs> and then Judah goes to his family and he's like, Masala, we're not going to see Masala again because he wants me to snitch. <laughs> and the family's like, yep, like too bad. And then, but I, I mean, I really like how also Masala himself goes up to the roof and he sees that there's like loose tiles. He's like, yep. oh, it clearly was an accident. Yeah. But I'm going to pretend otherwise. He knows. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's like a very wicked character. And then that mm. comes around at the end when they have their final meeting, I think that's like a pretty, that's a pretty great scene where absolutely. Yeah. Masala tells them the truth about his mother and sister actually not being dead. They're actually lepers. And just this kind of like, they still have that nugget of friendship, you know, and then there's an element where, and I think this is what comes into the sort of forgiveness aspect is Judah sort of risks becoming sort of like Masala. And I think, Esther says that mm-hmm. directly to him, where he's yep. like, "You're you're no better than him. You're just like sort of on this like revenge path." Mm-hmm. But then my sort of problem is that doesn't really seem because I think the the film kind of becomes rudderless once Masala's out of the picture because mm-hmm. I don't really know like there's this Judah doesn't for a minute doesn't even know his family. Well, now he knows his family is alive, but it's unclear like where the movie is going and like who does who does Judah have to forgive now. He's right because Masala's dead. Yeah, yeah. There's so, no, okay, he got his revenge. I think that I sort of read that last interaction maybe like a little bit differently. 
mm-hmm. didn't I did not see like a nugget of friendship there. I thought mm-hmm. if he was like your family is alive, but their lepers was like his last like dagger. Yeah, twist. Yeah, yeah. twist in the wound. He's like, they're, yeah, is, isn't it worse than them being dead? Mm-hmm. Well, he kept saying mm-hmm. like, we're still running the race or something like that. Yeah. Like I'm still, so yeah, maybe the fact that he is dead and the sort of like, he doesn't have anybody to forgive mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, maybe that's part of the point. But yeah, I yeah. agree. It sort of feels like what's, what's he supposed to do emotionally now? <laughs> Yeah, that's like that's kind of my confusion. And I may be com- just completely reading this this movie wrong because I think in the last in the last hour I was really kind of dragging. But yeah, like it seems unclear. Like he he does he goes and he helps out. He you know there's that great I think reverse where mm-hmm. you have like that kind of ring composition where he goes to give Jesus water yeah. sort of in a reverse of, of when Jesus helped him. Right. And then he just he just kind of it just sort of seems like he wanders around for the for the last, the back half of the movie. Yeah. He kind of goes to, to Pilate and kind of spurns his Roman adopted, like he spurns Roman citizenship. Yeah. Which I was kind of like, why? You seem so excited about just, it earlier. That, that feels much more sort of just like kind of motivated by animosity. Yeah. I think actually, yeah, like I'm not sure how to feel. And then his family is sort of just cured miraculously. Yeah. And everything by, kind of works out. Yeah. So like, I'm unclear myself of how to, how to actually interpret the sort of final 45 minutes to an hour of this film yep the kind of emotional arc doesn't really doesn't isn't is unclear to me at least yeah it doesn't land but it might be clear to other people this may be my failing as a viewer (laughs) i don't know i'm with you there i yeah i felt sort of strange but let's talk about the this film's crowning jewel <laughs> which is the cherry which is yeah. the part i think like whenever people talk about this movie they talk about the cherry race because I, I think it's still i think it's safe to say that this might be one of the single best action set pieces like put to film it's spectacular like it really is it's crazy how i mean and it's all real yes yeah the, the like there's there's a bit like the, the kind of famous bit where they're so this actually, I should credit or credit is due. This sequence was directed by Andrew Martin and Yakima Canute. They're sort of a second unit direction, and then but then William Wyler was getting the dailies, uh, and they were sort of filming with all these stuntmen. And Canute's yeah, son, Joe Canute, was the stuntman who, in that sequence where it like the chariot hits a bump and he flies up into the air. That was like not, I mean, that, that they, they did that. He does like a full <laughs> handstand and sort of falls up. And that gave him the idea. And they're watching with, with Charlton Heston. They're like, all right, we got to keep that shot because that's amazing. <laughs> and and the Charlton at the time was like, uh, like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, <laughs> and so they, they had, then they had the shot where like, all right, we're going to put Charlton on. So they cut it with like Charlton where he falls onto like the center beam yeah. of the, of the chariot. And then he like crawls back into the chariot. Oh my but, God. Like, Whoa. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, it's, it's bru- I mean, I really, I really kind of like this movie. I think this is a reason like so many like high school Latin classes show this because it yeah. really does a good job of like capturing like the brutality of these games and these yes. kinds of blood sports. Because mm-hmm. people just get demolished in this thing. It's wild. It's horrifying. And just yeah, the like violent ferocity of having that many horses like mm-hmm. on the field at the same time. And, I was ugh. deeply nervous for all the horses involved. I know, but it's like the the wheels are like getting close to the horses. I'm like, I don't care about your stupid chariot. It's like it's gonna yeah. go through these and horses' they, legs. And, <laughs> and they just they they did like such a good job with all the different shots and angles there, and like yes. it was it was so impressive to me. Like we were talking about with certain battle, like we were talking I think way back in like the Alexander film 
how like it's really hard to do battle sequences and these like very intense action because it's just hard to get a sense of like where everyone is and what's going on mm-hmm. i think this is super clear in like a lot of like naval combat bits yeah. like in cleopatra like it's sort of clear what's going on but there's they're doing sort of tricks right of like what the hell's happening with all these boats <laughs> and this one is like you know exactly where everyone is in the race like yes. how many they keep cutting into the the dolphins that are marking the yep. laps yep it's just like it's just like impressive how like great how it was shot and like they cut they have like they have shots like of the wheels they have shots like following them as they go around the turns they have like shots from the top down it's and they're filming with 65 millimeter which is i think like at the time that like aspect ratio was like bigger than yeah. screens yeah <laughs> Hence the like bigness of this film. Yeah, I I've seen some like images of the cars that would like go around the turns with the horses, mm-hmm. and it just looks terrifying. You have all of these horses like barreling toward you, and this car like swinging. Yeah, it looks absolutely terrifying. They have this massive camera. It's it's the whole thing is wild, and it's, it's incredible that they when somebody saw this movie in 1959, it would have blown your mind. Hell yeah. It's just like the stunt people and all the, they trained all of these horses. It's, it's nuts, but, and like brutal, like, uh, yeah. um, cause Roman charioters themselves. Well, I mean, there's a couple, I mean, we, to get our, to put on our like nitpick hats, but like <laughs> we can say things like, Oh, like there's no way a tribune would have ever raced. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Well, I didn't, didn't like Caligula or someone like that, like create his own chariot team and then race. That sounds like something he would do, but I don't know. You have to imagine that, like, nobody's actually going to run over Caligula with, <laughs> with yeah, a chariot, Yeah, no, it's right? a little bit. No, no um, I think, uh, no, I know they could, Caligula had a fame. He was fan, He was a fan. There were chariot, in Rome itself, there were chariot teams. Blue and greens were kind of some of the big ones. There was yeah. a red team and a white team, I think. Sounds right. Well, it's like, it's like ancient NASCAR, right? It's like part of the reason that you watch is like for the crash and the destruction. And it's not, Mm -hmm. not even just like, who's the fastest it's there's strategy to it. And it's like, Mm -hmm. people really, really die horrifically (laughs) in these chariot races, which is why it's like, it's not people's names. It's the color of their chariot because the drivers Mm -hmm. get recycled so many times. (laughs) And and people were really into this. One of my favorite, there's a whole body of, of tablets we have. I know there's a whole bunch of them from Carthage, but we have these cursed tablets. And there's a whole like yes. subgenre of cursed tablets yes. that are cursed tablets directed towards <laughs> chariot, charioteers <laughs> and chariot racers and things like that. Like we have these like little iron tablets with people writing out curses like may like so-and-so's horse break a leg or something like yeah. that. Or, like lose in the chariot. Like there's many of these. People are, of course, probably betting very heavily on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. One of my first sort of like, I had like a research assistant job when I was an undergrad and I was gathering a bunch of data just for a class on like Roman civilization. And I was gathering a bunch of data on, on chariot racers. And they, one of the things is most most chariot racers were themselves were slaves or enslaved people who were sort of like almost traded like in a, in a similar way to like the way sometimes like modern sports franchises might trade players. Yeah. They were a crew. They also tended to be very young and they had tended to have very uh, short, violent lives. Like we have their, epit- we have their graves with their epitaphs and they, you know, they're like, they're in their mid to late teens and then they might die in their mid twenties. That's most of them. Yeah. They tend to have very short careers for reasons you might expect yeah. as this movie's chariot sequence makes abundantly clear. <laughs> I do love like the 
the like medic guys just like running out in between rounds with yeah. a stretcher. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, oh, and when you can see it's like really violent. Like I know it's a I know it's a doll or like a like a prop or a rag doll, but when like the guys get run over by the horses, I like I know. feel it in my bones. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really actually shocked that nobody was like super killed on the set there's a couple of urban legends about this and one of them was that a stuntman was killed i okay i've heard that but is it for the set of i claudius isn't there actually a stuntman that was killed under a chariot oh maybe i'm like conflating my my urban legends because i feel like i thought it was either i claudius or this movie that supposedly like actually kept in an old version kept the death in like somebody gets Mm. run over and it's real oh wild I, th- I feel like that's this movie. There's not really a chariot race and that we see at least in I, Claudius. What am I thinking of then? Obviously, I should have Googled more of this before. <laughs> so there's there's a couple of urban legends. There's one that one of the stuntmen dies. Somebody says this happened in their autobiography. Uh, another is that you can see a Ferrari during it. I don't know. What? That seems like an easy to disprove. Yeah. Although I think that's purely myth. <laughs> There's another one that apparently like Heston is wearing like a wristwatch, but that's not the case either. That's funny. <laughs> it's it's also crazy. Like one of the, the things I found fascinating actually when I was doing this kind of research about Cherry Tears is that we also have a lot of their stats that would be preserved on their epitaphs of like things like how many, what, what sort of events, because there was multiple different events for Cherry Races. Mm-hmm. The big ones I think are the, the Quadriga, that's the four horse. Yep. But you also had two horse and I think there were like six and eight horse ones. But the main ones, I think, were the two and four. Mm-hmm. But they had, like, which events that these racers raced in, how many, like, how many times they won, how many times, like, how many laps they led for. They're, like, just, it was, like, baseball card stats kind yeah, of thing. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's wild. <laughs> well, it's it's such a, like, a powerful and, like, lasting sport that I know it was, like, an Olympic sport at one point for the Greeks. Mm-hmm. And some of the early, at least Sicilian uh, tyrants would put, the their quadriga that won like on their coinage <laughs> mm-hmm. they weren't the one racing it of course they just like no, owned they... the horses or the chariot or something yeah um and it, yeah it was like like nascar or something like yeah. that or like yeah they like sponsor you yes. sponsor a team exactly yeah there's there's one sort of very famous charioteer whose name comes down to us his name's Gaius Apuleius Diocles I learned about this guy he was racing around the early second century AD uh, he raced with the Whites. Nice, nice. He is the most decorated charioteer. We have his wings, at least as reported. His winnings totaled over 35 million sesterces. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> which, uh, which is about 2,000, 2,500 kilograms of gold. I think, I, I mean, I don't know what a conversion, it, that would make it something. It's in... Oh no, that's that's not even his total winnings. He estimations put him between winning approximately in his career between winning approximately sixty million and hundred and sixty million USD. Oh my gosh, that's like, like some sort it, of crazy professional. Uh, yeah, football no, player. I think this would if that's true, that would make him like the highest paid athlete ever. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> that's wild. Which is insane. And the other thing about him, he had over a. Th- uh, he had 1,400 career wins. Just the fact that he survived that long is and, and out shocking. Of, he won 1,400 out of about 4,000 races that he competed in. <laughs> oh, my god! The other thing about this guy was he has he had an unusually long career. Yeah. He raced, he raced for about 24 years 
which is like unheard of. Yeah, most people's racing careers were like were like under five. Wonder, I wonder if it's like a um, a Dread Pirate Roberts situation where people just like <laughs> took up his name <laughs> yeah. and kept being him. <laughs> No, that takes away how cool it is. <laughs> he also changed teams, apparently. He he started off racing with the whites, and then he switched to the greens, and then he spent most of his career racing for the reds. Okay. Um, and he died in Preneste. He die on the court? <laughs> or I don't know. <laughs> no, he age. retired. He, he <gasps> This guy actually managed to retire. Amazing. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. He's like the Michael Jordan of chariot racing. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. But yeah, this, like, I don't know. This, this again, the, the bigness of the scene, this this whole sequence took nine months to film. I think worth oh every, I mean. Yeah, worth it. Yeah, I think you could, you could make like a cut of this movie that just like gets the basic beats of Masala and Judah and mm-hmm. then ends more, you know, like, I don't know. You could almost, re- I don't think you should. I think film heads would probably call for blood if sure. you were to like recut this movie, but what was that? What am I saying? I'm saying that like you could, like, I think just showing the cherry sequence alone is like pretty wild. Like this without the cherry sequence, this movie is a different movie altogether. Yes. I would probably feel very differently about it. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It does a lot. It does a lot for the movie mm-hmm. as a whole. But yeah, I don't like super know where I even want to go from here. I think it's, yeah. it's interesting that there's a lot of, female characters in this movie that I feel like weren't we haven't seen quite as many really important female characters because like his mm-hmm. mom and sister are sort of they're out of the movie they spent four years in a dungeon I with know the door never opening and they got leprosy which is so horrifying and really yeah, that's scary terrible. um but like it's wild that nobody I mean that nobody saw them for four years yeah it's it's completely it's completely wild I was about to say, speaking of female characters, I had a moment where I had to pause the movie because we were talking, again, another case of familiar faces cropping up. But Marina Birdie, who played Eunice in Quo Vadis, is in this movie. Really? Her, her, her character's name is Flavia. There's a scene, it's when they're in Rome, and he's at the dinner with Arius. Yeah. And it's when Arius is adopting Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. And Ben-Hur's like with a lady. Oh my gosh, that was her? Yeah, that's her. That's Eunice from, from Quo Vadis, the, the Petronius's. Uh, girlfriend That's so weird yeah it's and i saw it i'm like that i'm like wait a minute is that her and then it's apparently she's also in cleopatra but she has a very she's uncredited and she's the queen of tarsus it's like it's like a blink and you'll miss it thing wild but yeah like so there's esther i guess we can talk about esther i guess i don't know it's like she's just i don't know how i feel about esther i just feel like like his family is such like a huge motivational point and mm-hmm. they, they sort of stay throughout the whole movie just sort of like off screen. But like his sister is the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. And like his rescue of his family is sort of like a big part of the end. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Esther just sort of like dances around the outside. Like they're, they have this romantic connection, but we don't really ever get to see much of it as like a real relationship. Yeah, because it's like he, his relationship, his, his, this is, I think, playing into these kinds of just like the way certain like gender relations were normalized in these kinds of films. And I think we, we kind of, Kuwadis is like kind of the bad example. And I think Spartacus is getting away from it a little bit where 
he meets Esther. Like, he's talking to Esther's dad. He's like, oh, my daughter's getting married. Can we have your blessing? Mm-hmm. And Ben-Hur's like, of course. And then he sees it and he's like, <laughs> I'm going to make Ooh. her mine. <laughs> and then they have that that scene in sort of the, the, the room where they basically just like, you know, like, oh, if I wasn't getting married, you know, I, we'd kiss or something. And then they yeah. kiss. And then, and then immediately he gets like thrown in jail. Then. Right. Her and her father... Also, well, her father also gets thrown in jail for for being loyal to them, and then she's just living in his old house, presumably just carrying a torch for him. I, yeah, I guess like through four years or whatever, and mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It felt it felt very sort of like a vague romance, not not a forced romance, but just sort of not mm-hmm. fully fleshed out. And she, but she's the one that really kind of advocates for like. Let's go see, because she's the one who really converts sort of first, such as it is. Yeah. Where yeah. she becomes sort of one of, she sees, she goes to the Sermon on the Mount, and then he's kind of still angry at the time, and he just kind of walks away from the Sermon on the Mount. And she goes, and she has that kind of revelation, and then is trying to, like, bring him into the fold of forgiveness and redemption and that kind of scene. I did sort of, I did like the tension of, well, I think it was interesting, the tension of, like, when she encounters... Miriam and uh, Tizara, is that her name? Tirza. Tirza, Tirza. The the tension of like, tell Ben, tell Judah we're dead. Yeah. And and then she tells him that they're dead and then he finds out and then like, and then he goes to the, to the Valley of the Lepers and she's like, it will break their hearts if, if you see them. And so he's hiding and they come out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is like part of the, the sort of genre and then the time, but the, the acting is very kind of, you know, they, they tend, they have like big revelations and then they sort of, they <laughs> look away dramatically yeah. and sort of weep. Apparently there was a, the original actor who played Esther was fired because she couldn't sort of cry on cue. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of, and a lot of like moments of passion where they kind of throw themselves against a wall or a column or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of like, yeah, like there's there's sort of a an extreme melodrama and mm-hmm. heightened yeah. emotions. But I think that that's like part of the... It's the style. Yeah, it's part of the style. It's part of the flow, part of the time. Yeah. I, yeah, I do like the whole... It's, it's, it's is so dramatic. The I would rather my family be dead than be a leper. Or I would rather my mm-hmm. family think that I'm dead than know that I have leprosy. Mm-hmm. That is that feels like very tragic and old school mm-hmm. and yeah. But th- this kind of gets into the, like that the last hour of the movie is like its own movie. Exactly. Yeah. It really does feel mm-hmm. like a completely different, it's a total shift from. Yeah. We, we've kind earlier. of gone, we've gone like we, we sort of start with the religious sort of overtones. We, we sort of peel off for a while to have Judah's adventures in Rome mm-hmm. basically, or his, his, Kind of like like you said, he's sort of counting Monte, count of Monte Cristo arc, and then we sort of come back to it and then dwell in there for a very long time. We're like that's we've been away from that stuff for quite a minute. Yeah. And no, I lost it. Sorry, my my like this is it's all good. Yeah, it's Friday. Sorry. God damn it! I like had a point I was working towards. <laughs> <laughs> Something about the end being a different movie. Yeah, and I mean maybe that's really just sort of like like we we we've, we come back around to a, a sort of different movie that we're in. But I, there was one thing. There was one thing I did want to talk about, mm-hmm. which was the Romans, sort of generally, and like Roman occupation in this film. Well, it's interesting that sort of like this movie and Quo Vadis and Spartacus 
the Romans are the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And they're like the corrupting force, the the enslavers, they're the anti-Christians. And I I sort of for me that sort of feels almost odd. They're like they're like fascists, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like thinking about In this about movie how particularly, much, they're oh, very for sure. They're very fascisty in this movie. Yeah. And it it kind of strikes me as odd because thinking about how uh much attention and like I don't know, love we seem to have for the Romans as like, mm-hmm. you know, air quotes, classic civilization, whatever, or a modern republic. And even like British imperialism seems to have really loved the ancient Romans. Um, mm-hmm. And that like this repeated depiction of them as the the bad guy is kind of fun. And maybe it's like a, a fall of Rome sort of thing is like sort of this fixation on what they did wrong and like and yeah that's kind of the (laughs) there's there's a there's a common thread i think in all three of these movies where like in quo vadis it's like i think quo vadis is not so much the romans as nero specifically which is like the 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 apparatus of the the emperor yeah and like but like near there's there's a theme i think in all in quo vadis this movie and spartacus of saying that like Christianity is going to kind of free the world from the Romans. Mm. Like the beginning sort of monologue in Spartacus that feels yeah. actually kind of very like, you know, a little bit disjointed from the rest of the movie. Yeah. But it's it talks about like exactly that. It's like before sort of the birth of Christ or whatever and the and the liberation of, of people. Right, right. Which like as a historical, I mean, point we could sort of talk about the deep irony in that. <laughs> you know, the the there was a period of history where the church sort of ruled absolute and it was a bit it was a it was a it was a bit heavy-handed to a, say the a least. bit a bit <laughs> but this was a uh, some there were well some there, at least one critic actually pointed so the uh dilsey powell is an english film critic uh, in her review of this film and she is i think a there's a sort of counter like you're sort of pointing to of like a, a counter uh, inclination or like a desire to really want to like build up classical civilizations, mm-hmm. which is, I think is sort of equally fallacious. Oh, sure. To, to say that they're entirely sort of fascistic or they're entirely like forces of like intellectual freedom and yeah. elevation and enlightenment are both sort of wrong. Exactly. Yeah. But the Dilsey Powell sort of a reservation for she, she kind of complains that something like yet another film fostering the popular notion that great Rome was a collection of Nazis in short skirts, <laughs> which I think like it, it, two points, like I think it misunder and then this is part of our own sort of modern reckoning. It kind of misunderstands fascism and it misunderstands Rome that it's, it's going to parade as like openly evil sure. in that kind of like obvious a way yeah. um, where the Romans just kind of come in and then they just immediately start. Like and this movie's very upfront about it. like the Romans come in. There's there's all these soldiers. They're constantly basically like they're constantly beating and enslaving and whipping people and and killing and just you know just being tyrants sort of generally. Yeah, or like the mass you know taxation in the very beginning of mm-hmm. um, Jesus's parents. You know they have to go to the yeah. I forgot, totally forgot about that whole scene. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, it's it's that whole um, taxation scene, right? That's what they're there yeah. for to like be counted mm-hmm. in a in some sort of censor census <laughs> like in mm-hmm. words yeah and and yeah so it's it's this very like iron fist um you're like mm-hmm. living in this very very heavily occupied area yeah but i also think of like the life of brian and they sort of went that almost opposite direction making fun of well, what have the romans ever done for us 
Um, mm-hmm. Well, the roads and the and the schools and the food and the whatever, which we've also talked about how that is also bullshit in itself. <laughs> yeah, but it's to say that like like Roman, like as we understand it, I think. And again, this is I think an old. There's like an old school notion of like what it, like what Roman occupation sort of entailed. And mm-hmm. There's sort of a retroject, I think, to want to imagine it as like soldiers on every corner, yeah, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Which like in sort of reality, like one of we were, I think we were in a seminar sort, or we had a guest speaker who we were sort of talking about that. I think as we understand it, in Roman's administration of of various provinces and sort of conquered people tended to be a little more loosey-goosey like they absolutely had armies and legions and soldiers posted everywhere but like it was just physically impossible for italy or rome to have the sort of manpower and bureaucratic infrastructure to sort of directly oversee every single city and town and village yep and that a lot of roman sort of presence really involved like integration and cooperation or assimilation or syncretism with local nobility and local institutions and that who would become sort of part of the Roman apparatus at large, like these people might acquire sort of Roman titles or take Roman names or sort of operate in the Roman sort of bureaucratic system. But they were also, they also had a foot in their sort of local traditions or cultures or laws yeah like we we were in a seminar together where we were talking about in egypt that there were sort of different legal institutions in place like there was pre-alexander sort of egyptian law and greek law and roman law that all kind of mixed and meld and you might appeal to different legal systems depending on your situation or who you had to uh, appeal to (laughs) yeah yeah for sure. It was like the, yeah, the Romans were much more interested in maybe taking like the easy way out. So if there already is, you know, a system of governance, it's much easier to just say, all right, keep doing it this way. We're just going to call it something slightly different now. Mm-hmm. And it will keep working as it has always worked. Yeah, and that is not to say that they were never uh, violent or heavy handed. Oh, they were also terrible. Ju- <laughs> yeah. And particularly in Judea, yeah. which was the source of several very famous revolts which were met with sort of violent reactions and very drastic reactions mm-hmm. that, that that's not to say it was all peaches and cream or, um, oh, kumbaya, no. But. no, no, no. Yeah. I think they, they're, I think one of the stories of like the siege of Jerusalem or something has, uh, you know, people starving and mm-hmm. eating, you know, each other and all of these horrible things. And so, yeah, no, the, yeah. the amount uh, of like pain and suffering inflicted by the Romans is not, not mm-hmm. negligible. This, I guess. Yeah, th- this is a group who practiced decimation on their own armies. Where if, yeah. if a unit is found to be less than ideal, they would have you know rip random loss, and one in every ten soldiers would have to be beaten to death by their comrades. In the Spartacus, we were talking about the same. These are the same people who crucified six thousand revolted slaves between two cities. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but there there is you know like I think in a way that like. Roman occupation, this movie sort of makes it seem very often that it's like there's just a line of guys in red cloaks sort of lining the streets of every town at all times. Yeah. 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 Which was, you know, it was a little more and there was there was complicity and and back and forth. And they, you know, because a lot of like the way it sort of operated is they very often would have sort of allied kings or, or tribes or or groups that sort of would become integrated. The sort of running joke is that every for as aggressive and expansionist as a civilization as they were, the running joke is that the Romans, every war they ever fought was in defense. <laughs> that was the pretense yeah. that they kept up at least. Right. 
it was always like, oh, you've attacked our ally, and then now we can march and exactly things like that. But but yeah, like you know, the sort of there's a there's a we can kind of wring our hair. I did this. This I'm doing this again. Is it wring your hands or wring your hair? <laughs> I think it's wring your hands. We should have a whole sequence where I just say just, the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, just butcher idioms. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I. You know, the, we kind of the, the frustration that sometimes we feel about depicting the Romans either as this either or as they're either mm-hmm. this sort of force of civilization or or their their decadent corruption and sort of totalitarian mm-hmm. regime, and which is, I mean, this, this, there's shreds of this. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's like neither is a hundred percent false, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Like it's not. It doesn't. It wasn't born from nothing. That, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I think I don't know, it's like a very interesting sort of institution of like the or capturing of feelings about ancient Rome. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too in like an American film context where particularly after World War II, mm-hmm. I think, there's a tendency to really draw a connection between the United States and Rome. Yeah. As these as these sort of global powers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even to the, to the point where, like, ostensibly sort of, you know, the, the United States was sort of founded on the idea sort of nest or that, that it's, it's founded as sort of a, a new take on Rome mm-hmm. or model that. And granted, this is a lot of retrojection and projection. Exactly. About what that all means, but that is sort of envisioned as sort of a second coming of, like, the Republic or what, what, what have you. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, to, but the... It's a tangle that I can't yet unravel. Yeah. Easily or, or simply. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's something that I think a lot of modern like historians and classicists are still like kind of sitting with and mm-hmm. um, untangling little piece by piece, even just like for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, um, I don't know, we went out to do a performance review, but I was going to say my favorite uh, performance in this movie, we mm-hmm. talk about it like. We said already that's a little bit melodramatic, but I have one f- favorite performances, and that is uh, Judah's horses, who yes. are fantastic. And they're I so beautiful. Love, they're so good. And they come in, and when, first of all, we forgot to mention, but there's also one scene. There's one part of this movie that does not sit well with all of us, and that is Hugh Griffith as Sheik. Ooh, ooh, it's so bad. Yeah. It's so bad. Yeah. I don't really have much to say about it other than that it's just stereotypes of Arabs. Yeah, it's not good. In blackface. It's not it's good. Like Ooh. Yeah. I, we, we, we were, I was watching this with Tracy, and, and we both at the same time were like, is he? <laughs> yep. Yes, he is. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no. No, no, no. I think that character is played by Morgan Freeman in the remake, who's in the set. They gave him the set of white dreadlocks. Oh. Which is a weird look. Okay, yeah. Like, very, like, he has this huge... He almost looks like his character in the Lego movie, but, but like, a live-action version of that. Huh. Okay. Uh, just look up a picture. Okay. You'll see what I'm All talking right. about. But anyway, don't like that character or that performance. That guy's Welsh in real life. <laughs> so and awful. Yeah. Anyways, back to the thing I like. Those horses. Love it. They're they, so they beautiful. In, they're so like nice, and they're like. I mean, one of them keeps trying to bite Charlton Heston. <laughs> <I know, it's laughs> so well, yeah, they come into like in the tent, and they're just mm-hmm. all these like perfect, gorgeous, and mm-hmm. they have these like little attitudes, and 
Yeah, uh, and he goes around and he talks and like they're like kind of nuzzling up on him and he's like, I I, mean, I imagine that scene must have been improvised because there's no way you could have like yeah trained a horse to to do exactly that uh, repeatedly. Yeah, yeah just the I way he know. has to react. He's like, oh, I haven't forgotten about you. I love you too. And then <laughs> they had a lot of like affectionate scenes with the horses, and then which was good also because in the chariot race we were saying I was deeply concerned for all the horses. Deeply, involved. deeply concerned. Yes. <laughs> Well, and yeah, it's um, like one of the things is um, he doesn't want anyone to like use the whip on his horses, right? He's like, they're like so mm-hmm. important to me. They're my children. And then everybody else in that chariot race is like freaking going crazy with the whip. And yeah. then <laughs> here goes Ben-Hur. <laughs> I think that's like a really nice bit of characterization where Masala whips the horses yeah. and then whips Judah and yeah. is whipping people left, whipping everyone and everything left and right. Yeah. And Judah, yeah, doesn't, no whip for... For Judah, he just sort of wins through the, his teamwork with the horses. Yeah, yeah. It's adorable. And it was just the way they were driving the chariots. And, like, they took a turn, and I was like, whoa, like, that is a nice turn. And, like, the way he, like, cuts other racers off. <laughs> so, yeah, even, like, we could talk about anything else in the movie, but we always come back to the, the chariot race. <laughs> it's, it's the, I mean, it's this, like, without that scene, this yeah. movie would have, I think, been just forgotten yeah by time probably mm-hmm. or it would have been one of us you know we would talking like we don't talk about other movies of this era in quite the same way yeah i think yeah like Quovatus, i think is still remembered in some circles but doesn't have the kind of prestige that ben hur does mm-hmm. i think other films like el cid yeah yeah also charlton heston, charlton heston right was he was mm-hmm. also moses Ten right commandments yeah yep yeah mm-hmm. he was in a lot yeah, of he, these old school like biblical yeah. sword and sandal ones. Oh yeah, he was the guy. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he he was he was like the main guy for the for a lot of these kinds of things. Didn't sit well with Kirk Douglas, who was kind of bummed that he didn't get this role. <laughs> but it brought a Spartacus. Exactly. Which I'm yeah. For partially a revenge movie. <laughs> but like, I think this is another case of the kind of individualistic and kind of inherently sort of conservative nature that a lot of these films tend to be where it is Mm -hmm. primarily rooted in this revenge story if not sort of i mean judah does i think he's better than say vinicius where judah does he he cares about judea collectively and and the jewish people Mm -hmm. but primarily what we see in the story is him pursuing his own vendetta Mm -hmm. and and he, he has antagonism he's antagonistic to the romans but and but it's also largely motivated out of this yeah because when we meet him, he seems like he's somewhat of a moderate. Like he's wealthy. He has. He's maybe. He says something in the beginning. It's like, oh, you know what you could do for Judea? Like leave. Yeah, exactly. But he's, you know, sort of more or less. He's he's not openly antagonistic to the Roman apparatus, at least not right away. Yeah. That's really my if I my synopsis of this movie, of its time and its sort of characters and plot. Fantastic chariot race, <laughs> impressively well done. Plods a little bit at the end. I have a hard time reconciling aspects of the plot with the religious overtones. That's really my, that's my synopsis. Say if you, if you're looking for a revenge story, go watch Count of Monte Cristo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or just read (laughs) the Count of Monte Cristo. Now readings for losers. Says the the nerd. <laughs> yeah, don't read. Um, just find something with pictures. 
But do watch the cherry race. Yeah, watch, watch it the cherry times. race. It's, it's, it's quite impressive. I feel like, yeah, I, uh, I went and like watched it on YouTube after the movie. Mm-hmm. Did you watch it with Nick? Uh, he missed it, actually. He was mad. He's <laughs> probably uh, going to go I, watch it again. <laughs> I was like almost to the point because I didn't know like Tracy might have to, was like going to have to leave or something like that. And I was like, I was thinking like, oh, maybe we should just fast forward to the chariot race because like. Because that's the you part. You should just see that scene. <laughs> exactly. It's real cool. It's so cool. I mean, we're still gushing over it. I don't it. know. Like, well, it's, it's like every it's time. It's the whole part of the movie. I watch it. I like notice something different or like I see something mm-hmm. else. It's yeah, it's very, very watchable. And to come back around that we have this film to thank for the pod race, um, which I think <laughs> is the like most the truest like recreation of it, like spiritual. This It's the spiritual successor of this film. And it probably shows because it's the one part of Phantom Menace that I'm like, actually, it's pretty good. I have like no real. I think it, it works. It largely works for me. Yeah. Even down to like the way it ends, where like it's like Sebulba tries to ram Anakin and mm-hmm. then, like, he like pulls apart and Sebulba's pod falls apart. And then he goes, What does he say? He's like, Booja. Like, whatever, like the, the Star Wars word. I can for hear shit. it. I think it's, it's not, it's not, oh God, what does he say? Uh, I used to know this. I like just rewatched these films. Oh my gosh. I can hear Poo-doo. it. Poodoo. That's though. what he says. He goes, Poodoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. All right. So that's maybe that's our true synopsis is um, yep. watch Cherry Race and then podcast. This is pod racing. Po- podca- podcast. Podcasting. Pod race, pod racing. Pod, pod, yeah. Podcast racing. <laughs> race potting. <laughs> All right. I'm losing it. We got we to gotta say. Yeah, we got to we gotta be done. So minor update. Well, yeah, no minor update. But as, as always, our episodes are available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, or, and our website, moviesredig.com. Please rate and review next week we are going to be coming back with another guest we're gonna in a we're kind of pivoting out of these classic epics which i'm sort of thankful for i need a break i think if i have i don't think i have another four-hour movie in me nope (laughs) and but we are we're gonna pivot out but a movie sort of of the same time same year even in fact we're gonna watch black orpheus or orfeo negro um in the portuguese with, oh, I'm burying the lead with our very special guest, Dr. Rebecca Fudo Kennedy. Woo! Yeah. Yay. So look forward to that. In that case, thank you guys for listening, and bye. Bye.